Hello everyone and welcome to the October 14th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The Federal Ninth Circuit District Court of Appeals has ruled that the California Insurance Guarantee Association need not reimburse Medicare for secondary medical payments when it resolves a workers' compensation case. The California Insurance Guarantee Association provides funding when one of its member insurers becomes insolvent and unable to pay its insured's claims. California state law prohibits SEGA from reimbursing state and federal government agencies, including Medicare. SEGA filed this declaratory action in federal court after Medicare paid for and demanded reimbursement from SEGA for medical expenses of certain individuals whose workers' compensation benefits SEGA was administering. The federal district court ruled in favor of Medicare, concluding that federal law preempted California law to the extent it prohibited SEGA from reimbursing Medicare. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed in the Polish case of California Insurance Guarantee Association versus Alex M. Azar, the secretary of HHS. Medicare re- uh, regulations define the term primary plan to include a workers' compensation law or plan as well as other types of coverage in California. The appellate court concluded, however, that SEGA does not fall within the plain meaning of this definition because it is not a workers' compensation law or plan. Instead, SEGA is an insurer of last resort and thus assumes responsibility for claims only when no secondary insurer is available. The court went on to say that it makes little sense to interpret the statutory phrase primary plan to refer to a payer of last resort. The Medicare statute describes Medicare only as secondary. Under agency regulations, the term secondary refers to benefits that are payable only to the extent that payment has not been made and cannot reasonably be expected to be made under other coverage that is primary to Medicare. Because SEGA is not a primary plan under the Medicare Act's secondary payer provisions, it has no obligation to reimburse CMS for conditional payments made on behalf of workers' compensation insureds. Therefore, the district court was reversed and the case remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. In another Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals case entitled Murray v. Mayo Clinic, the Ninth Circuit joined four other circuit courts of appeal in holding that a but-for causation standard applies in Americans with Disability Act discrimination claims. This standard is considered to make it more difficult for employees to prove discrimination claims than what had been applied previously and was referred to as a motivating factor standard. The court reasoned that this change was required to comport with 
two earlier United States Supreme Court rulings that had adopted a similar standard based on similar statutory language found in the federal law. Using this new standard, ADA discrimination plaintiffs bringing a claim must now show that the adverse employment action would not have occurred but for the disability discrimination. Under the former standard, a jury could have found an employer had violated the ADA even if the employer proved that it had a mixed motive for the adverse action, in other words, both legitimate and illegitimate reasons. While employers can rejoice about this important change, any celebration should await review of their applicable state disability discrimination practice. Many states have adopted standards that are different from what is afforded by this recent interpretation of federal law. Since employees can and most often do bring claims under both federal and state law, juries will now face the un viable, inevitable task of applying two different legal standards. The two standards could yield different results. No liability under federal law, but liability under state law. California's ADA equivalent, the Fair Employment and Housing Act, requires that plaintiffs prove that the discrimination occurred because of their disability. California courts have interpreted this to require proof that disability was a substantial motivating factor behind the discrimination rather than simply a motivating factor. This puts California's standard somewhere in between the motivating factor standard and the new federal but-for standard. Most California plaintiffs plead violations of the Fair Employment and Housing Act rather than the ADA. A new WCAB panel decision found that the Death Without Dependents Unit has the burden of showing no dependents exist before they can collect the death benefit. Here's what happened in the case of Mary Leon versus the Department of Social Services. Mary Leon sustained an injury resulting in her death in 2012 while she was employed as a caregiver by the Department of Social Services. She was survived by two sons, Juan Manuel Vasquez and Julian Vasquez. Both were claiming a death benefit as dependents of Ms. Leon. They also filed a civil action for negligence in Los Angeles County Superior Court against the operators of Golden West Towers, the senior living center where Ms. Leon was murdered by a tenant of the center. Julian Vasquez filed a petition dismissing his workers' compensation claim with prejudice in 2016. And on the same date, the attorney for his brother, Juan filed a petition for to withdraw as attorney, citing Juan's failure to cooperate in the prosecution of his workers' compensation claim. Thus, an order was issued dismissing with prejudice the potential dependent Julian Vasquez and an order relieving counsel representing his brother Juan. Then, a settlement check in the sum of more than $559,000 was sent to Juan as a result of third-party tort litigation. 
In light of the dismissal of the workers' compensation claims, the Death Without Dependents Unit proceeded to claim the statutory death benefit under Labor Code 4706.5. But the work comp judge found that the Death Without Dependents Unit failed to meet its burden of proof to establish Ms. Leon had no surviving dependents and that the defendants provided sufficient evidence to prove that at least Juan Vasquez and his three children were the dependents of Ms. Leon prior to her death. The work comp judge further held that a credit for the civil recovery was applicable and would negate a claim for the death benefit. Thus, the work comp judge denied the death without dependents application for death benefits. And the DWD petition for reconsideration and the WCAB panel affirmed the take-nothing with its decision in the case of Mary Leon versus DSS. It said that dependency is determined as of the time of injury and may be defined as reliance upon another person for support. However, if the employee dies and leaves no dependents, the death benefit escheats to the state of California and is to be paid to the death without dependents unit. This provision has been held to require the death without dependents unit to affirmatively establish the absence of any dependents, either total or partial, of the deceased. DWD D, however, argued that because Juan and Julian chose not to pursue their claims for death benefits, they must be found not to be entitled to the benefit, and therefore the Death Without Dependents Unit should be found to be entitled to receive the entire death benefit. This, however, is not what the law requires. The WCAB said the law does not provide that the death benefit is cheats to the DWD if a dependent, either partial or total, has not received the benefit. Rather, the law requires DWD to establish that no person entitled to a dependency death benefit exists. The DWD has not established that Juan or Julian Vasquez were not dependent upon their mother and had no claim to a death benefit as partial dependents. And a jury awarded $8 billion in two punitive damages in punitive damages to a man who accused the drug maker Johnson and Johnson of failing to warn that young men using its antipsychotic drug Risperdal could grow breasts, a condition known as gynecomastia. Analysts called the amount excessive, particularly since the plaintiff, Nicholas Murray, had already won $680,000 in compensatory damages for his claims. J&J said the award was grossly disproportionate with the initial compensatory award and said it was confident it would be overturned. The verdict was the first in which a Pennsylvania jury had been able to consider awarding punitive damages in one of thousands of Respiradol cases pending in that state. The company faces some 13,400 lawsuits tied to Risperdal overall. Risperdal was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2002 to 
treats schizophrenia, but was not cleared for use in children until 2006. While the drug's label does note that gynecomastia was reported in 2.3% of Resperdal-treated patients in clinical trials involving 1,885 children and adolescents, the lawsuits generally claim the company understated the risk. In 2013, Johnson & Johnson paid more than $2.2 billion to resolve civil and criminal investigations by the U.S. Department of Justice into its marketing of Resperdal and other drugs. And now our crime report. A Southern California-based ophthalmology group its former CEO and several of its physicians have paid the United States and California $6.65 million to settle False Claims Act allegations. According to the pleadings, they defrauded public health care programs by billing for unnecessary eye exams, improperly waiving Medicare co-payments, and violating other regulations. This case involves Retina Institute of California Medical Group, a medical partnership of ophthalmologists who specialize in the treatment of retinal diseases. It operates in multiple locations in Los Angeles, Orange, and Riverside counties. The defendants paid the United States more than $6 million and paid California nearly $300,000 pursuant to a settlement agreement. The allegations were made in a whistleblower lawsuit filed by a group who formerly worked for the company as administrators. The whistleblower provisions of the False Claim Act permit private individuals to sue on behalf of the government and to share in any recovery, but that amount has not yet been determined in this case. San Diego chiropractor George Reese was indicted in 2015 for referring patients to the Los Angeles area foremost shockwave solutions in return for bribes. Their bribes were set by the conspirators at $100 per patient and paid through an intermediary. After taking a cut amounting to $25 per patient, the intermediary would pay the remaining $75 per patient to Reese. Foremost Shockwave Solutions was allegedly controlled by attorney Lee Mathis and Fernando Valdez, its president. Both were also indicted. The indictment alleged that Foremost Shockwave Solutions and others engaged in a $22 million kickback and bribery scheme and that the co-conspirators paid bribes and kickbacks to physicians to refer California workers' compensation patients to foremost. According to the indictment, Reese and his co-defendants generated and submitted bills to insurers totaling in the tens of millions of dollars. Most of these treatments involve the providing of shockwave therapy, which uses low-energy sound waves to initiate tissue repair. Proceeds from the insurance claims generated through this scheme were paid to Mr. Mathis and Valdez. Reese pleaded guilty in June 2016 and began serving a one-year, one-day sentence. Valdez entered into a plea agreement in July 2017. Now, Foremost Shockwave Solutions has just entered into an agreement with prosecutors 
and agreed that it will not directly or indirectly attempt to collect or collect on any bills, claims, or liens filed by Foremost Shockwave Solutions or on its behalf. In exchange, the United States will dismiss without prejudice the pending charges against Foremost. And in regulatory news, Governor Gavin Newsom signed SB 537, which was passed this year without any no votes by legislatures. The law mostly affects the operation of medical provider networks and some of the timing and reporting issues. The provisions of the law will phase in at various times up to January 2014. Thus, the industry will have ample time to adopt the new provisions when they become effective. SB 537 was the product of several reform efforts spearheaded by a variety of share stakeholders. Broadly speaking, the main thrust of SB 537 can be seen in two areas, reducing medical disputes and improving the operation of medical provider networks. The new law also requires the DWC Administrative Director to issue a report to the legislature in 2023 comparing potential payment alternatives to the official medical fee schedules for providers. The bill would also require the Administrative Director by 2014-2024 to publish on the division's internet website provider utilization data for physicians who treated 10 or more injured workers. The information will include the number of injured workers treated by the physician and the number of utilization review decisions that resulted in a modification or denial of a request for authorization. And commencing July 2021, this new law would require every medical provider network to post on its internet website a roster of participating providers. The law gives the administrative director authority and discretion to investigate complaints, conduct random reviews, and take enforcement action against medical provider networks. Many other provisions take effect over the last few years. The Division of Workers' Compensation has also posted three new orders adjusting the official medical fee schedule to conform to changes in the Medicare payment system as required by the Labor Code. Changes have been made to the Physicians and Non-Physician Practitioner Fee Schedule, the Hospital Outpatient Departments and Ambulatory Surgical Centers Fee Schedule, and the Pathology and Clinical Laboratory Fee Schedule. The orders adopting the OMFS adjustments is effective for services rendered on or after October 1, 2019 and can be found on the DWC website. And in other news, the Workers' Compensation Research Institute has reviewed the non-pharmacologic services for pain management. Opioid dispensing to workers injured on the job has decreased substantially, it says, in recent years. In all 27 state workers' compensation systems, it studied. Increases in non-opioid pain medications did not fully offset these decreases. As a result, the percentages of workers' compensation claims with pain medication decreased in each of the 27 study states. 
However, workers continued to receive treatment for their pain for the most part. The WCRI study suggests that providers have switched from multi-pronged pain treatments, which involve pain medications including opioids and other restorative therapies, to a treatment protocol that more frequently relies solely on non-pharmacologic services. This change in treatment patterns conforms to the recommendations of the opioid prescribing and pain treatment guidelines and policies implemented in a number of states. These call for a broad adoption of alternatives to opioids for treating acute and chronic pain. The report disclosed what these non-pharmacologic pain management services are and how frequently they are used. The most frequent services billed and paid under the workers' compensation systems were physical medicine evaluation, active and passive physical medicine, and passive manipulations. The frequency of use of each of the non-pharmacologic pain management services varied across the 27 states. Physical medicine evaluations were conducted in the majority of claims, that is, 24 of the 27 states. As part of an evaluation, the physical therapist may decide whether additional treatments are necessary. Active physical medicine was the most frequent form of treatment in all 27 states. Their percentage of claims with active physical medicine ranged from a low of 50% in Massachusetts and 51% in Louisiana to a high of 67% in California and 68% in Nevada. Active physical medicine is exercise and movements performed by the worker. Passive physical medicine modalities were the second most frequent treatment in 18 states, with their percentage of claims ranging from a low of 30% in Texas and 32% in Massachusetts to over 50% in California, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Nevada. Passive treatments are administered by the manual therapy provider to the affected area. They are used in the early stages of treatment when the patient is too injured or their condition is causing too much pain for them to do active exercises. Passive physical medicine modalities include electrical stimulation therapy and hot and cold therapy. Passive manipulations were relatively frequent in the study states, ranging from 24% of claims in Arkansas to 58% in Nevada. Passive manipulations include manual therapy and massage. Chiropractic manipulations were used in 10-14% to of claims in seven states, while they are rarely used in most other states. Interventional pain management was the fourth most frequent pain treatment, ranging from 16% of claims in Maryland to 27% in Georgia. This category of pain treatment includes epidural procedures, facet and sacroiliac joint interventions, trigger point injections, and other injections and nerve blocks. 15% of claims in California and 4% of claims in New York received acupuncture, but this treatment was rarely seen elsewhere. Behavioral evaluation and behavioral treatments were very infrequently used. 
The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California has released the Interactive Policy Year Stats 2019 Edition Report. It provides premium, exposure, and loss information based on unit statistical report data submitted to the WCIRB for policy years 2003 through 2016. The Interactive Policy Year Stats 2019 Edition Report offers a spreadsheet-based user interface. This allows users to browse loss, exposure, and premium information and filter data by North American Industry Classification System sector, claim status, and claim type. In addition to policy year information, some loss information by accident year is also included. This new format was first introduced in 2018, replacing the WCIRB's Annual Summary of Policy Year Statistics report. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Skarin, Minuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. <music>